Welcome to Near and Far, a podcast service of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University, Chicago, Illinois, USA. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Kochurani Abraham, who is the coordinator of the Indian Christian Women Movement uh, of Kerala, among many other hats uh, that um, she wears. Very outstanding uh, woman in many sense of the word. And um, we are talking with her about her work and um, the uh, challenges that women face in uh, India, particularly issues about rape, uh, violence, uh, human rights, but also uh, the role of uh, faith-based institutions, especially the church, um, in trying to create a level playing field and fighting for justice for women. So welcome, Dr. Abraham. And we begin, I think that our listeners uh, would like to know more about you. So who is Dr. Kachurani? And what road did you travel that brought you to this point in your life where you have become such a visible leader of uh, the Indian Christian Women's Movement of Kerala and many other uh, things that uh, great work that you do, uh, Dr. Kochurani. Uh, thank you, Stan, uh, for inviting me to this interview. Um, and I'm really happy with the interest shown by the Global North to get to know concerns, questions raised by people and all the more by women because that interest itself is encouraging. Well, you want to know who I am? Yes. Basically, well, professionally, I'm a feminist theologian. If somebody asks me personally, I would say I'm just a human being. That is what I like to call a human who is becoming a human being who is becoming interbeing because my spirituality is leading me in that direction more and more. But professionally, uh, I'm a feminist theologian who's also a researcher, trainer. Uh, mainly on issues related to gender, sexuality, spirituality, ecology. These are the four areas I engage directly in my work. Um, I engage with the academia. I am not a full-time professor in any university now. But I'm a visiting professor in some institutes of Christian formation, some centers of formation. I also write mainly on these topics. But uh, I also engage with the grassroots. For me, that has been uh, my passion. And now that I'm not full-time into teaching work, that gives me more time to engage with questions and I really feel my vocation is to be a bridge between the academia and the grassroots. Because I think uh, knowledge making 
uh, is relevant and has significance if it has a transformative value, whatever be the field of knowledge. So that is important, particularly since my uh, area of engagement is theology and uh, you know, questions related to humanity and the earth. So I feel the knowledge that I make I receive this knowledge has to have a, a liberative, transformative impact on life and not just on the life of humans, but life at large. So that is my uh, engagements as an activist. I work mainly with women, but also I don't miss any chance I get uh, for engaging in training programs of youth and men because particularly questions of gender justice, gender concerns, I think that will, you know, transformation can come about when humans engage as a whole, not mm -hmm. in sec sections or categories. Well, you asked me uh, what has led me to become the coordinator of Indian Christian Women's Movement in Kerala. I think it is, you know, the story, I can trace back the story around three decades. It was mainly in the 80s when I was a young student of theology. Uh, in the mid, my mid-20s that I was awakened to a feminist consciousness. And that was indeed a turning point in my life. You know? that brought in a whole new perspective, uh, a new worldview to my own understanding of myself, uh, how I look at other people, how I understood the church, all that came into me. You know? uh, the Indian Christian movement is a very recent development, recent in the sense it started at the national level in 2014. But much before that, you know, since the 1980s, uh, having woken up to a feminist consciousness, uh, particularly, you know, I started uh, after my initial theological training, I was working with an NGO, which was started by the Jesuits. And we were engaged in, um, in the human promotion of a very marginalized indigenous uh, community in uh, Maharashtra, that is Central India. And that, I was there almost five years, and that opened my eyes to look at the world, to look at life, to look at God, all that from the perspective of those who were from the who were at the margins. And uh, then my position positioning within the church. You know, I was a formal religious earlier. I belonged to a religious congregation. Uh, and uh, actually it was in 2008, only I took this position because I felt I needed a different space for the type of mission I was engaging with. And ever since I find myself living my religious commitment, 
what I what I call the cloister of the world. So my engagements within the church, I uh, you know like even though we were we had begun speaking about gender justice and all, uh, I started with these questions in the eighties. You know, a lot of it, it goes because the church is so hierarchically structured, okay? Uh, women, particularly thinking women, find a strong glass ceiling in the church, okay? So it has been difficult because we can think, you know, there is a certain level to which you can go and you can't go beyond. So that has been, you know, the space given for women to engage in mission, to broaden the scope of the church's mission was very difficult. Because if you went, if you took few steps which were really radical, which would challenge ecclesiastical structures or which were political in nature, which would disturb the powerful of the land, then you will be pulled back. So we, we really felt difficulty with the space that was given in the church. So in 2014, um, a group of us women, uh, I was associated with an organization called Sriwani, which signifies, it is an Indian term, Hindi, uh, which signifies voice of women. And uh, Sriwani had initiated a national conference to look at women in the church while um, celebrating 50 years of Vatican II. And at this conference, we had invited a woman from a Protestant church, which we call, in it is a church called Church of South India that belongs to the Anglican, you know, that is an offshoot of the Anglican communion. Uh, she is also a feminist theologian. So then she came to address us Catholics she raised a point because Catholic Church that you might know very well, uh, even though we have we are open to ecumenical relations, Catholic Church is not a full member of the World Council of Churches. Okay? So even in India, there is the National Council of Churches in India. So all these churches, Protestant or even within their National Council of Churches in India, they have strong women's commissions which are headed by clerics or even by bishops. The same in the Catholic Church. We have women's commission, but ultimately the decision maker or one who holds the reins of power is a bishop or a priest. And this is stronger in the Catholic Church. So this Protestant woman said, why don't we think of, we are raising similar questions within the Catholic Church and in the Protestant circles. Why don't we think of an independent platform where we can engage with the questions concerning women's lives and the other areas of mission that women want to engage with greater freedom without being pulled back. And that was the time, like, you know, the seed was sown to think of an Indian Christian women's movement, which does not come under any of the churches. It is independent. We have really created. So at that conference, all of us who were there were extremely happy and we said we should go ahead. 
So that was started in 2014. And uh, in 2017, I am based in Kerala now uh, since 2012. So in 2017, we started the Kerala chapter. I, with a few Protestant women friends who had feminist sensibilities, not all of them were theologically trained, but uh, with the feminist sensibilities and questions, we created this platform. And I remember the first, uh, you know, the, the, for launching the Indian Christian women's movement in Kerala, we had taken the theme, Women's Lives Matter. <laughs> that was in 2017. Actually, uh, the, the idea of Women's Lives Matter came to me uh, because I think it was in uh, 2016, I was invited to the Philippines uh, to speak at uh, Asian Lay Leadership you know, program uh, that is training uh, Asian youth, Catholic Asian youth on questions related to equality, gender equality, ecology, all these concerns in the Vatican II vision of the church. So at this conference, I had gone as a resource person on gender concerns, but there were two American uh, white young people who had come to speak about their engagements in mission. And they spoke about the Black Lives Matter movement in 2016. And I was quite struck by they being white young people who are talking about the Black Lives Matter because that was the first time I heard about the Black Lives Matter. And I remember, you know, it, very many things struck me. So when I was in the airplane flying back from Manila to India, and I said, this can apply to any group of people who are marginalized, who are victimized, who are targeted. And I said, no, no, we have to speak about women's lives matter. So that has been a broader framework for initiating, you know, the rationale for initiating uh, Indian Christian women's movement in Canada. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, as you talked about uh, your experience at that Manila conference, yeah, you made me remember the experience of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. the first time he went to India. And uh, a teacher uh, introduced him to uh, the students. And they said, uh, please uh, uh, join me in welcoming an untouchable just like you, because uh, that was prior to um, the, uh, the civil rights movement. It was just beginning, and he was a guest of the Indian prime minister. But then it dawned on him, too, in a different way, that uh, racism is similar to the experience of the untouchables. And, you know, that takes us into the world of human experience, the experience of human suffering, how we are all connected and how um, uh, connecting to other suffering uh, is, us, is a way, it opens a way for us to um, become very incarnational. And you, you, you've done this work and I'm gonna combine uh, two questions here because 
uh, as you know, the latest uh, available crime data from the Human Rights Watch uh, give a very shocking uh, statistics of uh, cases of rape uh, in India. And roughly, there's one rape every 17 minutes. And this is a painful situation. And it's even more painful if it is happening uh, within the church. We have cases. There's a bishop being tried for, for rape, raping a nun. And the nun uh, is uh, being doubly uh, victimized as it were. So um, can you tell us more about this painful uh, situation in India? Is it part of uh, uh, the fight of uh, your group? Yeah, actually, uh, these very days I've been engaging, you know, last night I sat up till about 11.30 drafting a letter that we've written to the Home Minister because there have been a very gruesome rape and murder of a policewoman in the capital city it, uh, of New Delhi. Uh, it happened in, in, on the 27th of August. But, and it is slowly coming to light. The culprits are not caught. There's been a nexus between the police. You know, police are not investigating properly. Politicians interfering. So we want them to take strong action. Just now, you know, I was having dinner and put on the TV and the late evening news today speaks about a gang rape of a girl you know, in another district in Kerala where she was drugged, you know, drugged by giving her liquor with drugs and gang rape by a friend and his friends. Okay, so this has become very common and when I remember, you, I think you asked me why it is so persistent. You know, why is it not stopping? Basically, when I look at the issue, I think it is a deeply cultural problem. Okay? See, as you said at the beginning, racism and untouchability are similar. Why is that racism cannot be eradicated? You know, in the Western culture, even today, the same thing is happening. India, if you know, India is a mosaic of cultures. We can say there is a Hindu culture, there is a Christian culture, there is an Islamic culture, there is a rural culture, there is the subaltern culture, there is the urban city culture. But when I look back, there is a common denominator all these cultures are deeply patriarchal. Perhaps in the cities, you know, in the big metros of India, like Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore and all, certain things are deconstructed, okay, of this culture. But I live in Kerala. Kerala is, sometimes I feel Kerala is one of the uh, most developed states of India in human development indices. Okay, for its exposure to education, <laughs> population control, all that. But in spite of that, it has not succeeded in deconstructing patriarchy. You know, my own doctoral research, 
was with the Catholic Serene Christian Women of Kerala, who are who hold the highest position in the human development indices in the whole of India. But very many women who are professors in colleges, very many of them, even though they would agree that domestic violence is wrong, okay, sexual abuse should stop, they would still feel, you know, we cannot go too far because it will rock the boat. Okay? It will disturb, it will upset. Maybe some of these women are very strong outside, but when they come back home, they would like their husbands to be like gods. They would prefer to take a second place. Okay? So there is a lot of contradiction in that. And I would, in a way, a basic problem here is India, even though India is very modern in certain sense, extremely backward in certain other aspects. One common factor is India is a very deeply religious country. And my own state, Kerala, is extremely religious. See? And religion, when patriarchy is reinforced by religion, people become very uncritical about it. So this is a basic problem, but that doesn't give, you know, license that you can rape. Okay? But India, in India, marital rape is not criminalized yet. Okay? When that is not criminalized, does marriage give license to rape a wife? Okay? When this was raised in our parliament some years ago, very many male parliamentarians stood up. They were not Christians. Sir. They said, no, 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 marriage is very sacred. How can a husband rape a wife? But in my doctoral research, 74.2% of women, and we, mind you, are very educated women, they said they feel obliged to be available to husbands every need on day. So you see the contradiction. This is a basic problem. Thanks to the women's movement, of late there has been a lot of, at least rape is being reported. Okay? Earlier, rape was the only crime in India where the victim was blamed. I don't know if you followed, the, in 2012, there was a very brutal gang rape and murder of a girl in New Delhi. Yeah, yeah, I followed that story. And uh, I don't know if you've seen, there was a documentary made by BBC titled India's Daughter, where they interviewed the advocates, okay, who were the lawyers who were defending the accused. Okay, all the four accused were caught. And the lawyers were saying, why was she, why was the girl on the street with her boyfriend at 9.30 in the evening. If she didn't want to be raped, she had to sit inside. Okay? So such questions, so what was the girl wearing? Why did she go out with her boyfriend to a, you know? Why did she, if she didn't want to be raped, she had to lock herself inside. This is the cultural problem that I'm talking about. Uh, in the church, Okay, at least the world came to know about sexual abuse in India after the bishop's case was brought to light. 
I don't know if you've heard of, you know, the sexual abuse of nuns or clergy sexual abuse is not a phenomenon happening only in India. Okay, it happens all over the world. But maybe in the Western world, what you what we know more is about pedophilia, okay, and the rest of it. But it was in, uh, I think, in the 90s. I don't know if you read about a report of uh, sister, one sister, Mora Odonu. I think she was Mora Odonu. She was the AIDS coordinator of the Catholic Front overseas. Yeah. And in that report, I was a young sister those days. In that report, she already spoke about her knowledge of clergy sexual abuse of nuns almost in 23 countries. And in the 90s, I was not very clear about this problem. You know, like I was not personally involved or aware of it. But from 2001 to 2005, I worked with this organization called Srivani, and I was coordinating the, a national project for the empowerment of women religious in India. So we called, we used to call for programs, nuns from major superiors to, you know, young professed sisters in different groups. And we created a space where sisters could talk aloud, you know, things they wouldn't otherwise discuss bring to the open. And that was the time clergy sexual abuse possibility, but nobody spoke openly about rape, okay? About people spoke about uh, unhealthy advances made on them, verbal abuse, ver sexual abuse verbally, you know, through jokes and uh, all that. Uh, so those days also, even though we wanted to address it, we always felt, you know, India is a country which is multi-religious and uh, we have to safeguard the image of the church, all that. So we would, we tried to deal with these issues. For example, when I'm like, you know, whenever I taught the seminarians, I would speak to them openly on these questions, all that. In 2014, there was a case which was brought to light, but again within church circles, the case of voyeurism, a certain case of voyeurism, where the victim was a Catholic nun and the offender was a seminarian. So this nun, you know, the seminarian through the ventilation of a bathroom, ventilator of a bathroom, he uh, took photographs of the nun bathing. And anyway, he was caught by the people there and he admitted to his, he admitted to his crime. Uh, and then the sister spoke to the bishop concerned of that diocese. Okay. But the bishop, initially the bishop told her, I will handle it. Okay, you don't speak about this to others. And uh, after a few weeks, the, the bishop didn't respond to the sister directly. The bishop wrote to the provincial saying, uh, you tell the sister to keep quiet. I will send, uh, I will handle the seminarian. Okay. And the sister kept quiet, went back to her work. But after a month, she came to know the seminarian was sent to Rome for higher studies. 
he had finished his VTH and he went to Rome for <laughs> his post-graduation. It was as though the crime, the sexual offense he committed was like a scholarship for him to go abroad. The sister was deeply shocked, angry, and then she approached the Forum of Religious for Justice and Peace. And I was associated with this forum. And then she wanted to bring it to light. When the forum involved, we drafted a letter. And within the forum, we have sisters who are lawyers. And we quoted, uh, you know, first we drafted a nice letter asking the bishop concerned, why is this happening? And uh, then the bishop said, it is nothing of the business of the forum to engage in this. I have sent the... Um, seminarian for high studies because uh, and I have told his formators there to give him counseling okay all that it is not your business I am settling it on getting that reply we were really angry so we quoted our civil law okay that voyeurism is a non-bailable offense according to the Indian penal code and not only the seminarian, the bishop can also be put behind the bars. So we told him we want action. But you know the, what, the, how the bishop responded? He gave us a two-page letter saying, uh, well, the seminarian is a very intelligent fellow. <laughs> so even if, if he doesn't, if his character is not changed, I won't ordain him, but we will have a lay theology. You see the understanding of theology. What is the category of or type of theologians we want in the church? Another thing he said was the seminarian and the sister are already reconciled because the seminarian said sorry to the sister. Is this often something that can be reconciled? Okay. So things like that which were extremely offensive. We even tried to take it to still higher up to the nuncio, but could not, we could not get a satisfactory answer. But even in 2014, in spite of my feminist sensibilities, I still felt, you know, we can't expose the sound side because already, you know, the we have a very nationalistic party in India, which is, which is, uh, you know, kind of uh, founded on the ideology of Hindutva. And they already, they were in some places, they were targeting Christians. So we didn't want the church to be victimized. So, but, and we wanted this to be sorted out within the church. So I was telling the sister, you know, let us try to handle it. Even though we knew we were, we were engaging in a losing battle there. Okay. In 2018, the other nun's case came up. And this nun also, from for more than a year, she had knocked at different, I didn't know her that day. None of us in our group knew her. Okay, I came to know about that from the media news channels. And then we said we had to take it up. Because we became very clear that there are no systems put in place within the church to address issues of the sort. And then we started supporting. 
so there is a serious problem of the patriarchal culture that is outside and the patriarchy that is legitimized and reinforced by religious gender politics so that is why it is so persistent yeah thank you um that's quite um um a troubling uh, narrative and um yeah we we do have uh a little time left for our conversation. I, I think um, that uh, given the seriousness of uh, what you are sharing, that this um, that we're gonna have more of this conversation. So in the five minutes that remain uh, for us, uh, we'd like to ask, and if you can answer briefly to this, um, how successful have you been uh, in healing those at least like that the sister you mentioned and many others how successful have you been in bringing healing to those who are suffering even if the system is still there you're working to change the system but there are many hearts and lives that have been devastated and broken um well, I, I don't measure, you know, these are not areas where you can measure success. Like I passed the exam and, you know, I have the result. Mm -hmm. These wounds are very deep, so the healing itself is a process. Okay? What I would call, quote-unquote, successful is the fact that we can engage in this process openly. And today I do it without any fear. Okay? And I don't do it alone. We have a group formed. We, we engage with different networks within the church and outside the church. Personally, I engage in, uh, you know, as in any healing, we need prevention. As we say, you know, prevention is better than cure. One way we try to engage in preventing thing is through gender consciousness raising. Because India has very many laws even to address rape, but these are not effective because people's mindset have not changed. So we, I take every platform which I get of formal education, informal education, writing, okay, to or engaging in campaigns to raise consciousness among people, okay. We do TV debates, so many ways of doing it. Within the church, one group that we have created is, we call ourselves SIS. SIS is Sisters in Solidarity. Okay? And this started after the bishop's case, when we started interacting with the survivor nuns, and we saw how marginalized and isolated she was within the church structures, within her own congregation. We really stood with her and we continue that process. We can say, you know, it is a therapy. Some of us, some of our team members who are psychologists, who are therapists, we have been attending to psychological therapy, you know, flower therapy, giving her flower medicines, a lot of ways. Even now, you know, beyond personal accompaniment, we do, um, 
know, group accompaniment where we engage with the ASIC group, we engage with her now because of the lockdown and the COVID situation, we cannot meet her very frequently. But uh, we have online Zoom sessions with her and a group of companions. After forming this SIS, we have become a vigilant group. And we are taking up issues with church officials. Not that we, we, want, we will get uh, answers and uh, we can change, but at least they know that these women are not going to keep quiet anymore. So I think, you know, that healing process, and we are trying to get more men to work with us. Since I am into the, you know, Indian Theological Association, Indian Women Theologians Forum, we conduct online programs quite a few times. We have conducted for different groups on uh, clergy sexual abuse. So we are trying to get more people on board, at least to come out of the fears of addre on addressing these issues within the church. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Kuturani. Uh, it seems uh, that the church has not been, um, uh, from what you're saying, the church has not been uh, supportive as you would, uh, would love. Is that correct? Uh, the church, particularly in India, that uh -huh. have not been so uh, supportive, they have not been championing this with you. And so um, just briefly, um, do you think uh, the church in India is supporting uh, what you're doing, not just the Catholic church, but uh, the, the churches? And secondly, um, uh, what, what can other, other, other Christians and non-Christian, because rape is not just a Christian problem. This is a problem uh, facing the entire society. What can the international global community that will listen to your testimony, how can, how can you be supported? See, my understanding of the church itself has evolved over these years. And when you say church is not supportive, definitely the official church is not supportive, the hierarchical church. And uh, in a way, you know, like there are people who are sympathetic or empathetic with you in this cause. They appreciate you for the stand you take, but they are afraid to take a stand against the bishops. Okay? That is the official church position. Some places where I used to be invited <laughs> very many times to teach, they don't invite me anymore. Okay? But I think that is, I take it as a price I have to pay for taking a prophetic stand. Mm -hmm. And I don't regret that. But mm -hmm. what I, I am evolving to consider, we are the church. So the church at the grassroots, the people of God, there are very many people who are supporting. Okay? And we draw energies, we draw resources. Even now, you know, the, the companion nun, uh, there are few companion young nuns who are supporting the survivor nun in the bishop's case. And we, we have been raising funds to support them there, you know, to engage them in uh, academic, uh, you know, some postgraduate studies, enrolling them. So there are people supporting us because people are understanding this is the cause that they need to fight. So for me, that understanding of the church, I don't see it very, you know, within, I take the church to be at the service of the reign of God. Yeah. 
<laughs> thank you. I think I think I will share I will share I will share that um, as well. The church, yeah. uh, the people of God. Um, you know, we like to uh, give you the last word in terms of uh, uh, your hope for the future, particularly the work you're doing. And um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, people like you and I involved in issues of gender equality, ecological spirituality, um, a new humanity, human and cosmic flourishing. All these, there are, people need hope. Uh, Dr. Kochurani, you will agree, people need hope. So what's your hope for, for the world and uh, particularly for uh, women in India? Uh, for me, you know, the present times, particularly the pandemic, is an invitation to a new way of being human. No? This whole undoing all these hierarchies that you that you grown with, okay, whether it is within the church or in the corporate world or in, you know, I mean, in the economic sphere or the human relationship with the nature. I really, I, I think that is where a lot, my hope comes from a new way of being human who is in, in their relationship with nature and other human beings. That alone can give hope because I believe very strongly in the spirituality of in their relationality that Pope Francis brought out in, uh, in um, Laudato Si. But it is not, uh, it's not just in the text of it. We had to make it a lived experience. And that gives hope. Because for me, the pandemic is a sign no? that a lot of, you know, world is reaching a breaking point. Okay? Things have to change. It's not only the COVID virus. But it's the way human beings have been tackling, the power structures have been tackling, okay, this, this pandemic. Wherever we have created networks which are interdependent, mutually caring, there is hope. People find hope to live, hope to cope with the pain that they undergo, even if they have lost a loved one during the pandemic. So for me, relationships of mutuality bring hope. And for that, we need a spirituality. And that spirituality cannot be ritualistic of any religion. It is allowing the spirit to flow, to create new life. For me, that's the source of my hope, which I transmit. I live at home and outside. Home. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kochurani. Um, thank you for your giant uh, witness and prophetic uh, courage and uh, strength of character. I'm sure that the light that shines from you uh, continues to illuminate so many people and uh, become strong enough to bring down uh, the bastions of power the idols that we have uh, built by our own hands, 
that is uh, obstructing this great movement, this interaction of peoples. And uh, um, we thank you, our listeners, for um, joining us. Uh, we've been talking today with uh, Dr. Kochurani Abraham, coordinator of Indian Christian Women's Movement. And um, we look forward to having you again at our next episode. And this is wishing you, uh, wherever you are, a happy day. And uh, be nice and kind to each other. Thank you, Dr. Kochurani. Thank you very much. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the global south. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Finnegan Chu, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology on the web, Facebook, Twitter, Vimeo, and YouTube.